a Podcast One production. Do you know I put perfume on before these recordings? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even wearing pants. <laughs> oh, dear. that's just it's us in a nutshell. important to my process. All right, let's do it. Actually, before we start... People keep demanding to know your tanning and hair and skincare. And basically every week we get a bunch of messages from people who want to know how you look so amazing. And it's starting to hurt my feelings because nobody ever asks the same of me. So <laughs> get effed all y'all. Take it away, my dulcet toned Adonis. Hello, Gistners, and welcome back for another dose of Just the Gist, our weekly-ish podcast where Rosie Waterland and I, Jacob Stanley, give you just the gist of what you need to know about a story we think you'll find interesting enough to bring up at a dinner party in the near or distant future. I'm today recording from tropical North Queensland, just outside Port Douglas. The gorgeous Rosie Waterland is recording from Radelaide, where she has just completed two solid weeks of self-isolation. And we are thrilled to be back with you one week after the last episode we just did. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you never know with us. (laughs) We're on a roll with our weekly-ish podcast becoming solid weekly content. I know, right? Mm. Um, So this week it's my turn and I will be talking about a little old murder because I thought it's time to just get back to some classic-ass true crime. Mm -hmm. So I will be talking about a woman called Jennifer Pan, and it's kind of became known as the Tiger Parents murder. Mm -hmm. So I won't reveal any more than that until we get to it. Okay, I've definitely never, ever heard about this. Oh, haven't you? Okay, cool. No, I'm pretty keen. Yay. But all right, before we get into that, take it away. Breaking news, a breaking news. I got the scoop, a see, X-ray, X-ray, read all about it. A breaking news. Okay, well, first, freedom. Yay. Freedom. I'm free. I'm free, yet I'm sitting in my hallway. It's Surrounded so by Duna for soundproofing, uh-huh. uh, my quarantine officially ends today. We're recording on Wednesday and I am free. Congratulations. What's your first stop once you actually venture outside those four walls? I don't, I don't know because I'm not really super familiar with Adelaide. So I thought I'd do a really exciting thing and figure out which bus takes me to the city from Caleb's house. <laughs> so I'm going to be testing out the public transport system. And then I thought I'd just walk around a bit and, I don't know, just be outside. I don't what know. What a thrill. <laughs> Exchange money for some goods. Yeah. I might shop. <laughs> I'm just very excited. I'm a little overwhelmed and I'm stuck here doing this with you dickheads, so let's hurry this along. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we won't take up any more of your time. What's news? Oh, my God. I'm obsessed with a show that I've been messaging you about called Selling Sunset. Uh-huh. So it's so good. <laughs> and I can't believe I only found it, like, three days before my quarantine ended. But it's this show on Netflix that everyone's talking about. It's um, a reality show about a like upmarket real estate agency um, on the Sunset Strip in Hollywood. Um, and they sell like, you know, five, eight, ten, sometimes 
$40 million homes. Wow. And it's um, owned by these two identical twin men who were lawyers and then decided to get into, you know, the real estate industry. And they only hire exclusively beautiful, bitchy, ridiculous women. Mm. <laughs> and all the women just fight with each other. They all, like, used to be actresses and they've all tried to be famous and now they do this. Mm. And they all just fight with each other and there's lots of cattiness. It's very real housewivesy. But then in the middle of it all, you get to see all these super rich houses and they show you what they're worth and how much the commission would be. So it's kind of like Grand Designs meets Real Housewives meets Kardashians meets Heaven. Uh-huh. It's the best. <laughs> so everyone has to watch it. Everyone's been talking about it on, like, social media. Everybody has, like, their list of who they love and who they think the villains are. I was telling you last night, my favourite character is this woman called... A character. They're real people. But this woman <laughs> called Chrishell, mm. who grew up, she says, trailer trash... And the reason she's called Chrishell is because her mum gave birth to her at a Shell service station and the <laughs> gas station attendant who was helping her was called Chris. So then she called her daughter Chrishell. <laughs> I'm obsessed. So I'm choosing to believe it's true, even though I was sceptical when you first messaged me about it. Um, Don't ruin this for me. I promise I won't. I'm choosing to believe. I'm accepting it as fact. But when you said it's a mix of Kardashians, Real Housewives and Grand Designs, I've seen none of those shows. So uh, well, I don't think it's really for me. Grand Designs is amazing because, um, you know, you just get to see how super rich people live. Mm. Like you just, and so that's what this show is. Like they take, they have all these listings and all these properties that they're trying to sell. And these houses in like Beverly Hills, Hollywood, LA are ridiculous. Like mm. they are ridiculous. So it's just, oh, I'm obsessed. You, Jacob, you will seriously like it. You'll like okay. it. Okay. I'm getting okay. onto it. I'm starting tonight. Yeah. Okay, good. Oh, I've only got a couple other little things. Oh, I wanted to... You'll love this. So, you know, we were talking about the post office thing last week in the US about how Trump's been, like, trying to mess with the post office to, um, like, affect people voting in the election. Yep. yep. One person has been particularly moved by this situation and has kind of decided it is on her shoulders to solve the problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cheryl. <laughs> so Cher heard about the post office. Oh, Cher heard about the post office and she was like, oh, no. And so she just started tweeting, what? What's happening with the post office? We've got to do something. And so then she, she tweeted, um... I tried to call the post office to volunteer, but they said they don't take volunteers. I don't understand. Why can't I go and help? I can sort mail. I can put things into boxes. And so then all these people are like, oh, my God, Cher is literally trying to save the post office by becoming an intern. And so then she was getting really annoyed that the post office were ignoring her offers for work experience. And so then she decided she's gonna, she was going to hold like a little rally. So there's this photo of her that she tweeted just by herself standing outside the post office, her local post office with a sign like, save our postal service. <laughs> like, Cher has really 
she's basically taken the the burden of saving the US Postal Service onto her own sparkly, glamorous shoulders, which I thought you would love. Oh, just when you think you couldn't love the Queen anymore, <laughs> she decides to go and save democracy for the United yes. States. By wow. doing work experience at her local branch. Well, more importantly, she's drawing attention to a cause that a lot of people up until now maybe hadn't heard of, weren't taking seriously, but now they know that if... Cher herself is emotionally <laughs> invested. Oh, God, she's just now unified every single gay across the United States to do so, what is needed to so, save the USPS. Uh, so, um, yeah, she's into it. So I'll keep you posted on how her crusade is going. Oh, I hope she releases a new song. <laughs> Some sort of anthem to raise funds for the USPS. Save the mail. <laughs> You can't vault without the post. <laughs> oh, my God, you guys. You have to know that for um, our friend uh, Bex 21st. So this is oh almost 15 <clears throat> years ago now. Mm-hmm. Jacob, she had a dress-up party and Jacob decided I, to go oh and no, share. No, no. No, no. What? You, this was genius. Rebecca actually gave everyone directions on what they had to dress up as. So on everyone's oh. invitation, she specifically told them who they had to come as. And I was given share and accepted that. very, very gladly. Um, and as if you, you didn't make her give that to you. <laughs> well, <laughs> I might have influenced her decision <laughs> slightly. I went as Madonna. I went mm-hmm. as Madonna and you went as Cher and you couldn't just go as Cher. You went as Cher with a costume change about <laughs> three hours into the evening and it uh-huh. was glorious. Um, mm-hmm. God, there's some photos of me looking very dusty that night. <laughs> there's a couple other things. KFC has decided they need to get rid of their famous catchphrase, finger licking good because of COVID because finger licking's dangerous now. Uh well, it was always <laughs> really disturbing. <laughs> so, Soz, can't lick your fingers when you eat the dirty bird. It's uh, the end of an era. Uh, um, oh, that really they... makes me feel like dirty bird. Sure, you're making me feel ill. <laughs> um, what are they replacing it with? Oh, I don't know. I'm just giving you just the gist. Mm-hmm. That was literally a headline and I didn't even click on the story. So, you know what? It may not even be true. I <laughs> just... <laughs> <laughs> Trying to pull some things together for you. <laughs> so I was watching um, American Pickers, this show that comes on Seven Mate at like three o'clock in the afternoon. So I've spent a very glamorous time in quarantine. Mm. And American Pickers is just about these guys who go around America buying like collectible stuff and then selling it in their pawn shop. That's not the point. Anyway, they're in their car driving to whatever place they're going and mm. they were talking about how they had just you know, left their hotel. And one of the guy goes, oh man, I forgot my decoy toothbrush. And the other guy was like, what? What the hell is a decoy toothbrush? And he went on to explain something that horrified me so much that I will never travel without a decoy toothbrush again in my life. Don't. So <laughs> this guy says, oh, I'm about Aww. to ruin you forever. He was like, I used to work in hotels. And so I know that if you... 
are annoying to the staff in any way. So if you leave your room pretty messy, or I guess in the US, if you forget to tip because you have to leave money for your housekeeper, like if there's something gross they have to clean up that's annoying to get back at you, they will take your toothbrush and like rub it in the toilet and then put it back in the sink. (laughs) And he said, so ever since I knew that to be a thing they did, I now travel with a decoy toothbrush and I leave that on the sink and I leave my real toothbrush hidden in my bag so that I know I'm always using a toothbrush that hasn't been tampered with. And I just kept thinking about this one time when... I won't tell you who or what happened, but I was with someone in a hotel room who threw up in the bed at about three o'clock in the morning and it smelt so bad. I had to put the, we couldn't keep it in the room. So I had to get the sheets and just put them outside the door. And I called the front desk and I said, I am so sorry, but we've had a bit of an accident up here. Someone's going to have to come and pick up vomit covered sheets they would have put my toothbrush in the toilet. <laughs> no doubt. And I probably would have deserved it. So I I just, I will never again in my life travel without a decoy toothbrush. That is a genius move. And if only I had found that out a decade or so ago, the hundreds of hotels that I have stayed in. And I when know, I move into I a hotel, I basically just let a bomb explode. My stuff so is do I. everywhere instantly. Yes. Um, and I hope I haven't annoyed anyone enough to the point that they would choose to use my toothbrush as a toilet cleaning utensil or worse. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've definitely brushed my teeth with <clears throat> a toilet toothbrush. There's no doubt. <laughs> like, I'm a slob in hotels, so... I love how this doesn't teach me to not be a slob in hotels. It just mm. teaches me to get another toothbrush. Mm-hmm. <laughs> dear. Mm. And oh, is there anything else I wanted to tell you? Oh, one more little thing is that, so you know that I've um, become a little bit of a connoisseur of TikTok mm. ever since I figured out how to actually use it. Yep. And um, there's this trend on TikTok of people who work in the service industry. So like people who work, you know, either in shops or restaurants or hotels or whatever, outing celebrities who have been really shithouse to them. And also, like, they're basically doing ratings. So, you know, oh, I served Ariana Grande and she was so sweet and tipped really well, 10 out of 10. Oh, I also served, um, uh, I think one was Hayley Bieber. Bitch, really snooty, blah, 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 one out of 10. So it's kind of like forcing celebrities to be accountable for shitty behaviour. But it made me think that I have so many stories like that because, as you know, when I was at university, I worked at Gold Class Cinemas on George Street in Sydney, mm-hmm. which is where every single Australian premiere of a film is held. So we mm. did so many fancy red carpet premieres. And so for those three years, the amount of celebrities I met and served and gave drinks to, I have so much dirt on so many people. And what I will say, look, I'm not going to name names because I'm classy. But what I will say is the bigger the celebrity, the nicer they tend to be. And the Mm. small, like the more C grade, D grade, E grade, 
the more up themselves they tend to be. Mm. And because Australia, you know, doesn't... Premieres are a big deal when they happen here because it's, like, exciting that we get them because often, like, big movie stars don't bother flying all the way here. So Mm. whenever there was a big premiere, literally anybody who'd ever once sneezed on television got invited, usually. (laughs) And I have seen some real D-grade Aussie celebrities be real dicks. (laughs) And I've got so many stories. So if I feel like dropping some bombs, watch out. So are you saying everyone needs to follow your TikTok channel or whatever they call it now so that they can get the goss if you choose to drop it? I could choose to, but I don't think I ever will. I mean, partly because I work in the industry now myself, it was very strange when I went from working the bar at those premieres to being invited to them. That was strange. Mm. And there were still people that I had worked with still working there, which Mm -hmm. like, it was just like, oh my God, what the hell? Yes, I'll take the free booze. Thanks. (laughs) When you first started that story, I genuinely thought that you were going to say that you had actually been reviewed by a TikToker. Oh, my God. (laughs) No, I'm not famous enough for that. (laughs) As if. Like, I don't think... I mean, I have been worried in the past because I probably get approached, I don't know, two or three times a week. People come up to me to just say they're a fan of my books or the podcast or whatever. And I'm always really nice. I'm uh, like, and I'm always just so happy to talk to anyone. It's really flattering and lovely, but also I'm very shy. And so I Mm. do often get nervous that people would mistake my shyness and introversion for being rude. Mm. And so when I watch some of those TikToks, I'm like, oh, well, all you said was that that person didn't really smile and didn't talk much. That just might mean they're shy. Like, it's a difference. I think there's a difference between that and just actively being a bit of a dick, of which I have served a bunch of people who were just total dicks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but no, God, I hope, I hope, I don't know. Oh, God. Well, look, you know what? I think it's good for celebrities to be on notice because it just means that they'll always treat their wait staff better. Why? Mm-hmm. That's good, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. It genuinely is. Yes. One of the most famous people I served was Robert Downey Jr. I think he was there for, I don't know, one of the Iron Mans. Like, this is years ago. But I remember, like, they had all these rules. His people got in touch with us and they were like, do not look him in the eye. Do not talk to him. The mm. only thing he will drink is this special Perrier water that they flew in from the US because we didn't have it. So there was this box of special water just for him. And so when he came, everyone was really nervous. And I remember he came up to me and I was like, oh, my God, don't look in the eye. Don't. I was like, Ugh. and I sort of said, oh, um, and he asked for a water. And I said, oh, yeah, we have your special water. And he said, my what? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, we've got special water for you. And he, he just like started laughing and he just didn't even, he, he just thought that was so ridiculous. And he uh. was the nicest, loveliest celebrity. He talked to everyone. Like he like made sure like to talk to all the B grade Aussie celebrities who were there. Mm. He's social. Like, cause even in the gold class bar, there's tears. So you walk the red carpet and then only famous people get to go into the gold class bar. Everyone else just gets like shepherded down to the theater straight away. Mm. 
And then in the gold class bar, they even tear off another section for the uber famous people. And Mm -hmm. so they had teared that section off for him so that he wouldn't have to talk to anyone. But he was like, no, he was out there. He was talking. He was so nice. And his people had made us think we were going to be dealing with like a psycho and we were all really scared. And he was just so pleasant and lovely and friendly. So... I like to believe that about him. That's good. Yeah, he yeah. was really nice. Mm. So I've got lots of juicy stories. So maybe one a week, let's <laughs> oh, Drip feed. All right, is that it for breaking news? That's it, yeah. Shall we All get right. to Jennifer? Pan, 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 pan. So just felt like doing a bit of a classic murder. Classic, you know. Is it an death. unsolved Gruesome mystery death. or is this one that was resolved? It is or... solved. It's okay. solved. It's solved. Okay. Mm-hmm. So here we go. Setting the scene. It's 2010. Mm-hmm. It's November 10 and a 911 call comes into the police. It's Jennifer Pan and she's a 24-year-old woman who lives with her parents in Ontario, Canada, eh? <laughs> oh, you know. She's oh, you she's hysterical. She's tied up. Men had broken into her house and she's screaming into the phone. There's you can listen to um recordings of the phone call. It's like it sounds really petrifying. She's screaming and she's saying like she heard them take her parents downstairs to the basement and then she heard pops and and the uh, operator's like, do you think they were gunshots? And she's like, I've never heard gunshots. I don't know what gunshots sound like, but I mean, yes, I, that, maybe. And mm. then she said the men stormed into her room, pulled her out of her room and tied her to the banister of the stairs with a shoelace. And she thinks her parents are dead. She's petrified she's screaming she thinks the men are gone and then suddenly on the call you hear a male voice like screaming and wailing and the operator's like who is that and jennifer's like oh my god it's my dad and so then she starts yelling like dad dad it's okay i'm on the phone with police and then he like runs out the door and he's out on the street screaming and then the police get to the house and that's when the call ends and so that night Three men had broken into the Pan home. Vic, mm-hmm. Jennifer's mother, had been watching TV downstairs and Jennifer had been watching TV in her room and Han, her dad, had gone to bed already. Mm-hmm. Jennifer tells the police that she heard, like, commotion downstairs. She heard her mother sort of panicked calling out to her dad and she heard lots of footsteps. And so that's when she was like, oh, something's going on and she got scared, so she stayed in her room. Um, Then she heard these men demanding money and she heard her parents saying they didn't have any cash on them, like maybe some in their wallets. And then she heard the men getting really angry um, and she heard the men take them down to the basement. Then they, uh, one of the men came into her room and demanded money from her and she had $2,000 that she'd been saving up in her like dresser drawer. So she gave that to them and she begs to be taken down to her parents, but instead they tie her up to the banister and that's when... Um, she hears the pops and she thinks they've left and she manages to reach back into her pocket and get her phone and that's when she calls 911. Mm-hmm. So her mother, Bic, is dead. She's been shot in the head. Han mm-hmm. had also been shot in the face but somehow survived and he woke up about two minutes after he was shot Um, saw his dead wife next to him and ran out of the house screaming for help, which is what the operator could hear on the phone call. Mm. He bumped into a neighbour who tried to help him, 
the bullet had gone through his eye and lodged in his brain. Um, oh. When the police got, yeah, I know. When the police got there, it was one of those things that were like, I think it just, you know, when a bullet just just misses the right things and just lands mm-hmm. in like a millimeter the other way, and you're like a goner. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the police get there, he's taken to hospital. He's immediately put into an induced coma while they figure out if there's any possibility of saving him. Mm-hmm. Jennifer is taken to the hospital. She's physically okay, but incredibly shaken and traumatized. Um, but the police say, look, please let us interview you because like history shows that the sooner we get you to start saying details, the better you'll remember. And you could tell us something that will really help. So she goes to the police station that night and is interviewed until like Mm 5am. And the first sign that something might be a bit off is that Jennifer seems really shocked when the police tell her that her father has survived and she keeps and is in a coma and she keeps asking, are the doctors saying he's going to wake up from the coma? Is it possible he'll wake up from the coma? And they're like, why aren't you just happy? Like she did, she seemed more concerned about whether he was going to wake up rather than hopeful that he would. Uh huh. Right. Yes, and I can they, see your face. Oh, yeah, we're all putting it together. Um, yes. And were they suspicious immediately about the fact that she didn't really want to talk to them just yet and then she was well, only interested they, in her father's consciousness? Yeah, so she was interviewed by them and often because of the way people react in shock, they were sort of forgiving of her being a bit weird and she didn't really seem super emotional. Like she wasn't crying and stuff. But... Um, when they really started to suspect was at the end of the interview, they said, okay, um, we need to take your phone. And she was like, Mm. excusez-moi. And they were like, (laughs) well, you know, it's not because of anything suspicious. It's just that um, there may be things that you don't even realise, like, you know, we're thinking maybe if someone had followed you or your dad or your mum home or um, maybe someone had been stalking any one of you, like we can tell by going through your phone where your phone has been and then we can look at, you know, security footage of where you were and see if there's any, you know, it's just, we just go through your phone and just like it's going to be helpful to us. And she was like, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. Like she got really weird about it. The police said like the whole mood in the room kind of changed because she Mm. just suddenly got very nervous about having to hand over her phone. And she was asking heaps of questions and they were getting confused because they were like, look, it's... You, if you've done nothing wrong, you have nothing to worry about. Like, yeah. it's just to help us. So mm. eventually they convinced her and she had a lot of questions about what they would be looking at, who they would be contacting from her phone, like how far back they were going to look, whether they had the ability to look at deleted messages. Like she was asking all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But eventually she just signed the thing and said, okay, fine, you can take my phone. Which I have to say in her defence any one of us would be apprehensive at the thought of handing over our phone to any sort of authority figure or just any person, even a good friend. Like you just suddenly question what is in there that I wouldn't want someone else to see. But I've said it before and I'll say it again. If Russia or China or TikTok or whoever are spying on my phone, the most embarrassing thing they're going to see is a whole bunch of photos I've taken of my vagina to like (laughs) get a close up of what's going on down there. Or photos of, like, the back of my head because I'm scared I'm going bald. So, I mean, like, 
Embarrassing, yes. Incriminating, no. Yeah, good point. Yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> so, I don't know. She goes to stay with uh, family because the house is a crime scene and her brother uh, Felix, oh, Fifi. Hey. Her brother Felix um, had been living at university about an hour away, so he comes back as well. And next up in hospital, her family noticed that she's asking a lot of questions again about the coma, how likely it is that Han will survive. She's asking the doctors, like, um, is it possible the bullet in his brain will cause an infection? Is it possible it's caused brain damage? Like, she just seems, and she actually seems quite frustrated when the doctors, uh, like, reassure her that the surgery went well. Mm. And then she asks her uncle if she can borrow some change to use the payphone because the police have her phone. And he's like, oh, here, just use my mobile. And she's like, um, no, thanks. I want to use the payphone. And it's very funny. And everyone's like, well, clearly she doesn't want us to know who she's calling. Like, yeah. that's real sus. Mm-hmm. The police, meanwhile, after her interview, already feel like she's a bit off. So they start looking into Jennifer as a suspect. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Jennifer now. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Pan was born in 1986 in Toronto. It's not so to me that she's the same age as me. Yeah. I know. Her parents had been political refugees to Canada from Vietnam in the late 70s. They both got jobs working in a car factory. They got married. They had Jennifer and Felix and then did the very classic noble immigrant thing. Like they worked their asses off so their kids mm-hmm. could take advantage of the life they had gone to Canada for. Yep. And they did really well. I mean, even though they were working these blue-collar jobs in this factory, they were really strict with money. They were really strict about saving their money to help with the kids' education. So by the time they were killed, they were living in a pretty big, beautiful house they owned. Um, Han drove a Mercedes, which was like his pride and joy. To him, it was like the ultimate symbol that he had created success for himself after working really hard for a long time. Mm. Big mm-hmm. drove Alexis. They had about $200,000 saved in the bank, which they um, were using to support their kids through college. Cause in the U S college is like not so expensive. They sent them to college in the U S as opposed to Canada. Oh, sorry. Canada. You know <laughs> what I mean? Okay. Wanting the best for their kids, though, means that particularly Han was very, very, very strict with them. They were mm. later referred to as what people know as tiger parents. Uh-huh. Um, right. Do you, would you like to tell the audience what a tiger parent is, Yekol? I mean, it would be interesting to know right now if it's considered um, offensive because the woke police seem to just be adding term after term to their list of no-nos. Yes, but I will say that there are a lot of Asian parents who take pride in the term. There's one woman who wrote a whole, like, self-help book about, like, a parenting book about how Mm. to be a tiger mom. So I don't know Mm. if it is. I don't know. But that's what they were called. So Yes. ah. So... Choose to use it if you want to. I don't think I'm ever going to have a context where I will or won't. Um, But a tiger parent is classically a... An Asian parent, usually an immigrant or maybe first generation who um, does everything that they can to push, 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 push their child to do every sort of extracurricular activity possible to make sure that their um, 
education is as well-rounded as it can possibly be. They expect their child to come in top of the class and so they're getting mm. special tutors for them all the time. They've grown up usually in a very, very competitive environment and so they yes. want to then pass that on to their child to make sure that they've got that competitive edge and drive to be the best from a very young age. So usually they'll have their kids enrolled in sporting clubs as well as you know playing multiple musical mm. instruments and then doing all all sorts of advanced university level sometimes um, additional courses to supplement their standard education they'd be getting in primary school and high school. They put on a lot of pressure, basically. Yes. Yes. Exhausting. Hmm. I can't even imagine... I mean, if there is an opposite of what that is, that's what my mother was. (laughs) I still, to this day get the shits that my mum wasn't a stage mother because I say if she was, I'd have won an Oscar by now. But, um, you know, I used to have to force her to drive me to drama class and then, and I think, gosh, but, but at the other end of the spectrum, I think a lot of the problem with these tiger parents is they're not forcing their kids or they're not pressuring their kids to do things that they even really maybe want to do. Like if one of those kids of a tiger parent said they wanted to be an actress, it would be like, lol, no. Yeah. You're going to be a doctor, read your science book. So. Yes. Mm. My mom's biggest regret in life is that when I was a little boy and I said I really wanted to do dance classes, she was too scared about me getting teased on the Central Coast for being <gasps> a male dancer. And so she told me there aren't dance classes for boys. And it is <gasps> one of her biggest, biggest regrets in life. And I try to reassure her, look, mom, I probably would have done it for a couple of months and then given up when I realized I wasn't the best. Because as a classic Leo, I am only interested in doing something if I am the best in the class Tony or the team. Stanley. Mm. I there aren't dance classes for boys. Yeah, yeah. How? She thought she was doing me a favor, but she looks back on that in horror. And luckily, society has come <laughs> a long way since then. And also, ironically, you are now like one of the biggest flaming queens to come out of the Central Coast. <laughs> so it's not like the dance class would have. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't need the dance class. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so that's that is what the pan parents were like, particularly Han. Um, mm-hmm. Education was the most important thing. It was pretty much the only thing Jennifer and her brother were allowed to focus on. She had been learning piano since she was four years old, and she was so good that she taught it. She had also started figure skating and won lots of awards and was so good. Um, they were hoping she would one day get to the Winter Olympics. Wow! But then she. Uh, so badly damaged a ligament in her knee that she couldn't do that anymore. But I mean, it was not so like Jennifer said it was at the point where when she was in elementary school, so that's for us primary school, like you five, four, five, six, she would go to school all day. She would get home, do um, go to figure skating practice until 10 PM. Then she would get home and her parents would make her stay up till midnight, finishing her homework. Her mm. primary what homework do you even have in primary school? <laughs> it yeah. takes you two hours until midnight. Like <laughs> what? Um, this feels so, like torture. Uh, well, just wait. Uh huh. So at the end of year eight, which is uh, middle school in Canada, so like year seven and eight is a its own school in between. Mm. 
elementary school and um, high school. So at uh-huh. the end of year eight, there's a graduation, a middle school graduation, and there's like valedictorians and all that stuff. And so at the end of year eight, um, she Jennifer is expecting to get valedictorian. She's expecting to win a bunch of awards. Um, she doesn't get valedictorian. She also doesn't win any awards. And when she gets her report card, she actually hasn't done that well. And she's stunned because up until that point, she had excelled at everything and always been the best. And Mm. she can't bring herself to tell her parents that she isn't the best at something, which I get because I was often effortlessly the best at things in primary school. And then something and probably about year seven, year eight, I was still really good. And then I just sort of shifted to being kind of average and I stopped being the top of the class and, and as soon as I wasn't the best I was like well f this it's dumb anyway I don't want to do it <laughs> yes you know what I mean like yeah you and I have I always so had that like in that. common oh yeah. yeah I love doing something if I'm number one same I know so she is mortified and decides rather than admitting to her parents she's not number one she uh goes and gets a bunch of stuff on her computer. I don't know how people do it. Fakes her report card, makes Mm. it all straight A's. Then she gets to year nine and year 10 and it's the same thing. It's like she just kind of hit a wall where she's not the best or the smartest anymore. Like she's just kind of average, which is fine. Like it doesn't, it's fine to be average, but I guess not to her parents, but also not to her. Mm. So she like really starts faking pretty much from year eight, every report card she shows to her parents is faked. Mm -hmm. And like, I get it, man. Cause I remember when I was young, my older sister Rhiannon was really, really beautiful. And I was just kind of average looking. But to me, the thing that was special about me is that I was good at school. Mm -hmm. And when I remember when I went to private school and I went from being like, pretty much the best at everything to being like a hundredth in everything because Mm. all those kids there are so effing exceptional. I was so embarrassed and so ashamed and I had to like bring reports home to my uncle who was paying for me to go there and I was getting like ease in maths and science and Mm. the only thing I would do well in is English and drama and everything else was just like, Mm. I just, oh my God. And it just messed with my entire identity. I was like, if I'm not smart and I'm not the best, then what am I? Yeah. So, I mean, yes, it's pressure from her parents, but I would imagine it's also pressure on herself. Absolutely, yeah. So she's faking all her report cards. Um, She loves music. And while her dad is like, you have to be the best at it, that's why she, like, you know, got to the point where she's teaching piano and she's at level 1,000. Um, She's not allowed to pursue music as a career. Her dad wants her to be a pharmacist. Mm-hmm. Friends at the time remember she wasn't allowed to go out. She wasn't allowed sleepovers. Um, her parents would drop her off and pick her up from school so she couldn't really, you know, do anything. She did have a secret boyfriend, though, this guy called Daniel Wong, who mm. um, she went on a music trip to Europe. Mm. And while they were over in Europe, they got together, like, as boyfriend and girlfriend Mm -hmm. and so she did have secret little tryst with Daniel Wong but Uh other that was the naughtiest thing she did other than that nothing Uh in year 12 she gets early acceptance into Ryerson University um, and the plan is to sort of 
do a couple years there, then transfer to the University of Toronto to do far- like go to pharmacology school. Mm-hmm. But then she fails calculus and the offer is rescinded. And this is where the US and Canadian system of schooling and university is crazy to me because in year 11 and 12 in high school, you have to do maths, you have mm. to do science, mm. and you... And if you fail those things, you just don't graduate high school. And, like, mm. I dropped maths and science in year 11 and 12 because I was so bad at them. And there is no doubt in my mind that if I had to do those two subjects, I w- would have failed my HSC. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's just nuts to me that, that, A, they have to do them, but also, B, they have this bizarre system where college isn't like here where it's just based on your HSC mark and then you get given, you know, an ATAR and then you get into whatever course. Over there, you have to do these really complicated applications and write essays and show all the extracurricular things you've done. You have to really impress the university to get in. So then they offer you a place that is based, like contingent on the fact that you will then pass your exams and pass high school. Yeah. So it's mm-hmm. so weird over there that all these people get accepted into university oh but i've still got to make sure i don't flunk my exams yeah. <laughs> like, that is so much pressure yeah it's not so, but i mean they are 300 and whatever million people competing i mean i'm talking about the u.s i should be talking about yeah. canada i don't know the population of there but no, let's no, just no, talk no. about the u.s um which we seem to know a lot about their college acceptance <laughs> system just based on popular culture Movies and the and iconic stuff, right? submission yeah. that l woods put in legally blonde by exactly. a video and that's the thing. They also don't have exams the way we do. They just have something called the SATs, which mm. is a multiple choice. Which test. they're allowed to sit multiple times as well. Yeah. We get and one you can shot. Do it whenever you they want. They can do it again and again. Yeah. Yeah. You just go. It's kind of like a driving test. You just schedule it, go and do it. If you don't like your mark, you do it again. Like, mm. it's so weird. Yeah. But, mm. um, yeah, so she gets into Ryerson University, but fails calculus. So the offer is taken back unfathomable for her to tell her parents that. So what does she do? She just pretends that she's going to university and she does that for four years. Oh! Oh, That just makes me feel sick, the pressure. How? Um, Okay, so here's the crazy... Because of the calculus thing, she never even graduated high school. So not only did she not get into university, but she didn't even graduate high school, but she just spends every day like going into cafes, going to public libraries, just, you know, leaves the house with her book bag and off she goes and her computer and her boyfriend Daniel uh, had also kind of flunked out of uni and was going to like whatever their equivalent of TAFE is. Mm. And he was a little bit dodgy. He was doing like a little bit of pot dealing and he was managing a pizza restaurant. So she would do a couple of shifts a week at the pizza restaurant to like make money And she convinced her parents to let her stay a few nights at a girlfriend's house so she Mm. wouldn't have to um, travel into uni, um, but actually she was just staying at Daniel's house. Mm. She fakes forms showing them that she's gotten scholarships so that Mm -hmm. she doesn't have to explain to them why they don't have to pay her tuition. Mm -hmm. And, of course, after a couple of years, the plan had been for her to transfer to pharmacology school. Uh And so rather than tell her parents... She tells them that she got into the most exclusive pharmacology program in the country at the University of Toronto and that she's transferring there to start studying to be a pharmacist. 
So again, she fakes documents saying she got in. She fakes documents saying she got scholarships. She fakes documents um, like, you know, her transcripts or her grades every semester. And this part is nuts to me. Her dad was so invested in her, you know, doing well that he wanted to keep track of how she was going. And so she goes and buys all the textbooks that are part of the pharmacology degree and spends all her free time making super detailed notes from the textbooks to look like she's actually studying pharmacology. It's like you could, you basically are actually studying pharmacology. Oh, wow. I know. Oh, you know when you encounter people and they just keep digging themselves deeper and deeper and deeper into a lie and you're like, dig up, stupid, dig up. You're going further down. And I think, you know, I bring stories like this quite a bit. Like, you know, I was thinking a lot about when I was researching this, like Bernie um, Bernie Madoff and Elizabeth Holmes. And you sort of get to the point where you're like, was it dodgy the whole time or did they just try something screw up so then they told another lie to cover that up and another lie to cover that up and then they were stuck in it because I mean technically she has been lying since eighth grade so how does she get out of it now you know Mm -hmm. what I mean she continues faking transcripts grades her parents think she's acing it but then it gets to the point where it's time for her to graduate and become a pharmacist. <laughs> so <laughs> she tells her parents that the class was really big. So mm. there was only enough tickets for one person per student to go to the graduation ceremony. And she didn't think they would want to go without each other. So she gave her ticket to a friend. Uh-huh. Um, and then she brings home a graduation cap and a, you know, physical copy of her degree, her certificate. And when her parents ask her for photos, she says, oh, they're all on my friend's camera and my friend just went travelling, so we'll get the photos when she gets back. And her parents oh. at that point are a little bit sus. <laughs> Understandably, this is reaching the heartbreaking point right now, but, yep. It's- yes, and but also it's like I feel sick when I think about how much, like, she must have just felt stuck in it. I don't know, yeah. I just... We'll discuss her motivations. But yeah. mm-hmm. um, so uh, obviously now she has to get a job as a pharmacist. So she tells her parents she got one um, at a hospital in the city where she had been volunteering while as a student. So that was her way of not having to like fake job interviews and stuff. She's like, oh, I was volunteering and they offered me a job. And her parents are like, that's weird because we pretty much know where you are all the time and you never told us you were volunteering. But they... They're sus because she never has any kind of uniform. She never has any kind of hospital ID. Um, It just, based on her patterns, I mean, maybe she was getting kind of lax after all these years, but um, whatever started to make them suspect, they something didn't feel right and they start suspecting. So one day um, when her parents are dropping her off at the hospital, normally they would just drop her out the front. But Han, um, her dad, tells Bic, her mum, to follow her inside and see where she goes. And Jennifer realises she's being followed, so she sprints in as fast as she can and hides and then kind of spends the whole day just hiding in the waiting room because she's terrified that if she goes outside, her parents will be there waiting to bust her. So she's like, I've got to stay in here for as long as what a shift would be, so like eight hours or something. But meanwhile, her mum... Because she ran off, her mum goes around the whole hospital 
like asking people, does Jennifer Pan work here? Do you know no. Jennifer Pan going to all the pharmacies? And they're all just like, no, no one by that name works here. Oh. So that night is meant to be one of the nights she's staying at her girlfriend's place. Mm. So her parents call this girlfriend the next morning and say, can you please tell Jennifer to come home because we really need to talk to her? And this girl is like, what? She's not here. Mm. And her parents are like, hasn't she been staying there with you for like three years? And this girl's like, lol, no. (laughs) And so, but also at this point I was like, "Um, spin bullshit for your friends always. Like what a letdown that friend was. You got to like improv, you got to be on it, man. If someone calls you, you know our system. When we start dating someone new and before you meet them, I say, okay, so I've told this guy I'm a yoga champion. I've told him, (laughs) (laughs) and you're just like, yeah, on it, babe. Got it. You're covered. Spin your friend's bullshit. Yes. It's it's the same basic principle as improv. It's a yes and principle. Yes and. So Mm. this girl totally blocks it, blocks her parents, um, says, no, she doesn't stay here. Um, and so Jennifer comes home later that day and her parents confront her and everything kind of unravels. She Mm. has to admit that she was at Daniel Wong's house, who she's been dating for a long time. And they Mm. knew that she had been dating him in high school and banned her from seeing him. So they're furious. Mm. They then confront her about there being no record of her working at the hospital And so she tells them, she has to tell them that not only is she not a pharmacist, but that she didn't even graduate pharmacology school. She didn't even graduate university. She didn't even graduate high school. And her dad goes mental Mm. and wants to kick her out of the house. But Bic talks him out of it basically by kind of her parents convince themselves that it's all Daniel's fault. Like, Daniel led her astray. Daniel is dodgy. She wouldn't have done this if it weren't for Daniel. Even though by this point she's 24 years old. Like, she's a grown woman. Mm. But, um, you know, I think because of the way she's been raised and sheltered and uh, a lot of people say she seemed like a 15-year-old. They treated her like one and she often acted like one. Um, So they say to her, um, you can stay here but only... It's either Daniel or us. You stay here, cut off all contact with him forever, or you go to him and then you never see us again. So she decides to stay home because even though she loves Daniel and they're strict as F, I think she is kind of, she doesn't know how to look after herself. She hates the way she's restricted in her life, but doesn't know any other way and is too scared to leave. And the conditions after they bust her are strict as F. So they take her phone and her computer. Um, She's not allowed to go out except to teach piano and to go to classes to get her GED so she can get into university. The GED Mm -hmm. is like... Equivalent of high school qualification. Yeah. So that, you know, then she can actually get into uni. Um, and she does go to the piano lessons and the classes, but her mum, who's recently been made redundant, so has lots of time on her hands, drops her off, waits in the car, and then Jennifer comes back out, gets in the car, they go home. So she's never alone. She's always got someone watching her. Um, her mum's a bit softer than her dad, so she secretly tells her where the phone is so she can sneak calls to Daniel. But Daniel is kind of like, oh, I'm so sick of this shit. Like, we're adults now and I feel like I'm dating a teenager who isn't allowed to leave the house. He, and he's like, 
why don't you just leave? Like, mm. leave. You hate the way they treat you. You hate what they're doing. But she doesn't want to. Like, she, I think she feels she needs to be taken care of or I don't know. But, and so he just gets the shits and breaks up with her. And he falls in love with another girl. And that sends Jennifer over the deep end. Like, I mm-hmm. think he was literally the only person in her life who knew everything about her, who she relied on, and he's gone now. And so she starts doing all the classic, like, crazy girl stuff from movies to try and get him back. So she tells him that she was gang raped by a group of men who broke into her house while her parents were home. She needs him to come and take care of her. She tells him that a bullet was sent to her house in an envelope and she thinks that the men and the bullet were both sent there by his new girlfriend because she's evil and, and, and jealous of their close friendship and... But Daniel does also keep stringing her along a bit. So he gives her a secret phone so that they can keep texting. And when um, police went back over the text later, he was very flirty all the time and also often telling her, yes, there's a chance we'll get back together, but your parents are crazy. And um, that's when she mentions that her parents both have life insurance policies that they took out to protect her and her brother. If anything ever happened to them, there would be money for her and her brother to finish their education or whatever. And she knows that with their assets and the life insurance, if her parents die, her and her brother will each get a little over half a million dollars each. Is this the first time you've mentioned a brother? No, Felix. Oh, of course. Right. And yes. Okay. So is he still living at home at this point or is he... No, he was, he was away at university. Okay, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. Actually going to university. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe. Who knows? And so she realises, yeah, her and her brother, if her parents die, will get around half a million dollars each. And this kind of piques Daniel's interest, which Jennifer notices. And so she then becomes convinced that if she had that half a million dollars and freedom from her parents, Daniel would dump this other girl and take her back. Mm -hmm. So she starts talking to Daniel about how she maybe wants to have her parents killed. And Daniel's like, yeah, I mean, why not? And so through his dodgy pot dealing, he tells her he knows a guy who might do it. So her and Daniel get talking to that guy and they agree that she'll pay 10 grand per parent um, to have them killed, which she will give to this guy out of the life insurance payment when she gets it. Mm. Um, so this dodgy dude gets on board and he gets two other guys to help him. And the plan is to make it look like a home robbery gone wrong. Mm. So that brings us up to the point of the crime. Uh-huh. And police, after looking into Jennifer... They find out that she's lied about college. She's lied about everything. Um, You know, she's basically a a, um, pathological liar. They also Mm. find out that she's basically been a prisoner in her home since her parents found out about all her lies. Mm. And so then they're like, okay, we've got to focus on her. So um, they get her in for a second interview a few days after that first interview on the night of the shooting. And they start questioning her really hard. Like, and it's so cool. There's, I listened to an episode of the great Australian true crime podcast called Case File mm. for this. And um, he actually plays the audio recordings of the 
interview of her in the interview room. And also if you go on YouTube, every single moment of her interviews are on, you can watch them on camera. It's no way. so fascinating to watch <laughs> someone who thinks they're acting really well and they're not. And like, <gasps> you can watch over the hours as she starts to unravel and forgets what she said and starts losing her place. And it's so fascinating. Have to you watch. watched the whole thing? Or did you no, just I didn't flash watch them through all, it? But yeah, I, I sort of flashed through it, but also some people on YouTube with way more time on their hands than me have kind of made a montage of all the oh, most a super interesting cut. bits. Yeah, yeah like great. a supercut. Ah. So you can go, we'll put it in the show notes. And so they start questioning her hard and get it, and they start asking her to explain things in different ways. So, okay, tell us what happened again, but this time tell us as if you're um, above the above what was happening, looking down on it. And, yeah. okay, now tell us um, from the end to the start. And now, like, trying to, like, this, it's an interrogation technique they use to try and make you lose track of what you've said. And then yep. they also start questioning how she got her phone. They're like, explain mm. to us if your hands were tied, because when the police got there, her hands were tied tightly to the banister, which mm. in hindsight means she made the call and then tied herself after she made the call. <laughs> she's like an idiot. So they're like, explain to us how you reached into your pocket and made the call. And she's, and so she has her hands behind her back in the interrogation room and she's trying to show them how she did it, but she can't. Oh, so she hasn't even graduated high school, the poor thing. She can't pull this off. Oh. So it's all very sus. But besides the inconsistencies in her story, which, to be honest, can be explained away by just being very traumatised, um, they don't really have much. But then her dad wakes up from the coma. <gasps> bum, bum, bum. <laughs> and when he wakes up, he tells his family he needs to talk to the police ASAP. So the police come to his hospital room and he tells them that on the night he and Bick were tied up and he saw Jennifer walking calmly around with the intruders and talking to them like they were her friends. And the reason when he woke up in the basement that he ran out of the house screaming and not up the stairs to check on her is because he knew she was involved and he was trying to get away. (laughs) (laughs) But he couldn't talk because he'd been shot in the face. So he's just screaming and and the police come and they're like, your daughter's safe, your daughter's safe. And he's in the back of the ambulance like, like, he can't tell it was her. So he tells them it's her. He tells the police he doesn't want her coming to his hospital room. Um, But she finds out he's awake and she sneaks in there and get this. This is where you're like, nah, you're not stuck in lies, you're kind of a psycho. Mm. She sneaks into his room and you know what she does? She tells him she needs $1,200 because she's been accepted into university and that's her first (laughs) tuition payment. (laughs) Like, girl, please, please. (laughs) So, not true, by the way. Not true, obviously. That's a shock, yeah. Um, so she's just fallen back on the old habits of do everything that you can to impress daddy and yep. then everything's going to be okay. Uh-huh. Oh, no. So after talking to Han, police get Jennifer in for a third interview and this is the interview that breaks her. You've got to listen to the technique. Like, you've got to listen to the audio. It's amazing. But basically they um, just... 
keep leading her down these paths where she keeps contradicting herself and it gets to the point where they're like, Jennifer, we know you did this. Like, Mm. just tell us you did it. And so she eventually admits, yes, I did organise for people to come to the house, but they were supposed to kill me. I (laughs) wanted to kill myself, but I didn't want to bring shame on my family. So I organised to have it look like a murder. And the police are like, lol, Jennifer, are you effing serious? Why did they only shoot your parents then and not you? And she goes, oh, um, I can totally explain that. It's because I changed my mind at the last minute. But (laughs) they were really annoyed because they had like, I had promised them money to do this. And then when I said, oh, I don't want to do it anymore, the deal's off. They really wanted the money and they were angry. So to punish me, they came to the house anyway and shot my parents. And they were like, Jennifer, please, girl, stop lying. But at that point, she'd been lying since she was in eighth grade. Like, I don't think she could stop lying. So, And it's like they say... Pathological liars never admit it. They always double down. Mm -hmm. They always double down. So Mm. that's pretty much what she does. She's arrested during that third interview, which is November 22nd. So that's 12 days after the murder. Wow. Yeah. Um, They also arrest Daniel because he helped her organize it. Mm -hmm. Um, They find and arrest the three guys who actually did it. Um, They're all found guilty of murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to, um, you know, do a murder. Um, They all get life in prison with the possibility of parole in 25 years, which for Jennifer will be 2035 when Uh she's 49. But it's very unlikely she'll get parole because to get parole, you have to admit what you've done and show remorse. And she still to this day insists that, it was this weird suicide thing that went wrong and and she won't admit it. Mm. Her father uh, wrote a victim impact statement that was read out at the sentencing because he didn't want to be there to see her. And it's really heartbreaking. Um, they uh, The guy in case file reads the whole thing, but the last sentence is, I hope she can grow into a good and honest person. Also, Han and Felix, her brother, ask the judge to impose a no-contact order so that Jennifer is never allowed to contact them again, which she fights in court. (laughs) She fights it. It's like, they don't want to talk to you, babe. And she's like, no. But the judge grants it, so she's not allowed to contact her father or her brother. She's Mm. also given a no-contact order um, with Daniel, which she also fights, but it still goes through, so she's not allowed to contact Daniel either. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. Still to this day, says it was a suicide plan gone wrong, has doubled down, will not admit it, won't talk to the press, so nobody really knows, like, anything about what's going on in her head. The story became famous because a journalist um, who went to school with her, Mm. who um, was also of Asian, part of an Asian family, and who also, she says, had tiger parents, um, she wrote an article about... Jennifer, just from the point of view of someone who had grown up in a similar way. Mm. And that was the first time that people kind of realised 
that this whole tiger parenting thing had maybe made her crazy and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, it's like, but not everyone with tiger parents has them attempts to assassinated. Have them yeah. Mm. So that is the story of Jennifer Pan. Wow. Imagine the tales that she is weaving in prison oh. right this minute. Wow. I bet she probably loves it in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, probably. One day. I mean, she's I'm... taken care of, which I think is what she always wanted. She mm-hmm. didn't ever really want to take care of herself or work much for herself. And, I mean, she probably is really good at spinning shit and being manipulative and surviving that kind of very tough existence, I guess. Yeah, yeah. If she is ever released or if she ever does decide to break her silence, I'm sure there's going to be a really, really fascinating read that comes out of the book that she writes. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I read um, a book, well, listened to a book about it called um, A Daughter's Deadly Deception by a journalist who pretty much covered the story the whole way through. But that's the only really detailed book that's been written about it so far and none with her cooperation. She's never even given an interview to the media. Mm. It's interesting the parallels between this and Gypsy Rose and the other Blanchard, Dee Dee. Yeah. Um, just in the sense of you've got one parent who has massive amount of control over the existence of their child and then their child's rebellion is so incredibly extreme that it ends up resulting in violence that they yeah. get someone else involved in to wreak revenge so on the parent. Um, and obviously it's a very different sort of upbringing that she had, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, they've both had a child rearing experience and they've grown up and it's triggered something in them that has released this awful impulse. Um, I will say in high school, I always found it was the kids with the stricted, the strictest parents who ended up rebelling the most. Like I had a friend whose parents were so strict And she ended up bringing her baby to the U12 formal. So, like, (laughs) didn't quite work out for you, did it? You know what I mean? So I I don't know, though. I mean, this whole crime did launch a a massive discussion about tiger parenting and overbearing parenting and the kind Mm. of pressures people put on their kids. But then also some people say that it wasn't really about that pressure. It was more just that she wanted to be with Daniel and she thought maybe the $500,000 would make him want to be with her and it wasn't really the parents at all. But, I mean, what's fascinating, the most fascinating part of the story to me is how you can pretend to go to university for four years. That like, is nuts. To the point where you're putting so much work into it, you could have just gone to university. <laughs> like, I just can't even. Like, while the she parents- was doing that... She could have gone and got her GED. Instead of just sitting in cafes all day writing yeah. pretend notes, she could have gone and got her GED and got into university. Like, it's bizarre. Yeah. Uh, How sick and would you feel, like, knowing every day that you could get busted? Were her parents writing checks to the university that just weren't getting cashed or...? Well, no, because she, she faked all these scholarships. So she oh, kept saying right. that she'd been given all these scholarships so that, so that way they wouldn't have to... She wouldn't have to explain why, you know, she didn't need the money and it's just... Not and so. then when she had a paying job, in inverted commas... <laughs> 
<laughs> Surely they would have expected her to then have an income that she could in some way demonstrate. Right? Yeah. Oh, okay. But instead, I just can't... I just imagine her running into the hospital and just, like, hiding in stairwells for eight hours until she was sure her parents had left. Like, that's the point where you're like, okay, you got me. Like, I just... Exhausting. Yeah. It's a weird story in the sense that one minute you really feel for her that she feels that she's been pushed to that extreme and then the next minute you're thinking, no, you are just terrible and you are clearly making this choice of your own volition. Yeah, like the thing that made me realise that she was just terrible is when she got a chance to go and see her dad and not only did she lie to him and say she'd gotten into university, but she also tried to scam money out of him. Yeah. <laughs> so I was just like, what is wrong with you? Oh, oh good okay. Lord. I think she's just a psycho. Psychopath. Wow, that was a really good tale. I know. That's a good one. It's a good anecdote for a dinner party. Like, could you fake going to uni? Could you fake all your grades from when yeah. you were 13 years old? <laughs> Oh, my God, exhausting. The amount of work she put in, she actually, like, could have become anything. Oh, yeah, she could be Prime Minister of Canada right now. That's the thing with those people who are liars like that, put so much effort into, like, building these lies and covering these lies. It's like, oh, my God, if you just took that initiative and took that ingenuity and took that, which, to be honest, is a lot of creativity... Mm you could achieve something really exceptional. But instead you're like, no, I'll just go sit in this cafe and write pretend notes from this pharmacology book I bought secondhand. Yeah. <laughs> like, how bizarre. Mm. Oh, okay. So that's it. That is it. All right. Well, thank you so much for that. That was excellent. You're so welcome. I'm going to go run naked through the streets of Adelaide because I'm free. <laughs> Lucky Adelaide. All Take right. it out with me, Jacob. Ready? Freedom. 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 Okay, bye, guys. <laughs>